Coming up on today's show, tomorrow's federal budget should be interesting. It's the first real test of the new NDP Liberal Pact. Most Canadians, speaking of that Liberal NDP deal, are kind of okay with it. They feel a little betrayed, but if it brings stability, they might be able to just take it. And what can Canada and NATO specifically do to help defend Ukraine? Have we done enough? What more can we do? Coming up tomorrow, of course, we have the federal budget, right? Uh, It'll be delivered tomorrow afternoon, and it's going to be watched for all kinds of reasons. We know there's a lot of spending promises in there. What about defense? But also, beyond that, how is it going to work with this new arrangement that we've been talking about between the Liberal Party and the NDP um, to sort of walk through how it works and what we might expect, at least what they're expecting? We're going to chat now with Daniel Blakey, who is an NDP MP, the finance critic, from Manitoba. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So, of course, we have the federal budget coming down tomorrow, and a lot of people are saying this will be sort of the first test of this arrangement that's been hammered out between the Liberals and the NDP. Do you see it that way? Is is this sort of, I don't want to say make-or-break moment, but a very important moment in in this new arrangement? Yeah, I think I think it is fair to say that it's the first test of the agreement. Um, obviously, you know, well, first of all, I'd say for listeners who are interested, that's a public agreement, and they can find that online. There's a number of things that are stipulated for 2022. Some of them have to do with legislation on certain matters. Others have uh, directly to do with spending. Uh, the big item, of course, is getting started on a dental care program, uh, and the commitment in the agreement is to begin offering uh, dental services to children 12 and under whose families don't currently have any kind of dental coverage. Um, so there is going to be spending reacquired for that, and that's obviously something that we're looking for, as well as a number of other uh, items having to do with you know everything from housing to climate change in that uh, agreement uh, where we've been promised some movement uh, in this year. Yeah, I, and I, you know, we know that the dental care is, is sort of the headline, one of the, the things that will be closely watched. But let's walk through a couple of the other other ones. You talk about the Canada housing benefit. I know there was talk about that. What are you looking for in the budget tomorrow? Well, what's in the agreement is a one-time $500 top-up for this year uh, on on the Canada housing benefit. And that's, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm sure your listeners know what's going on in the housing market. It's been, it's been incredible, and there's been a lot of pressure, not just because of the rising prices, but also because of all the disruption that the, that the, that the pandemic has brought and, uh, you know, job loss and layoffs reduced hours, and that's made it really hard for people to be able to make their monthly rent. So we're still in a period where there's a lot of people who are requiring that little bit of extra help in order to be able to make rent, and uh, and, and we believe strongly it's important for the uh, federal government to continue uh, pitching in. It's also important for them to begin to address the supply side issues that are, you know, an important driver of housing costs across the country, and that's why there's an extension of the Rapid Housing Initiative for another year that's covered in our agreement, as well as a number of other uh, proposals uh, for for how to start getting a handle on a really you know a really long standing and a problem that is getting worse, yeah. not 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 uh, better. You no, know, it's certainly not. Have only skyrocketed during the pandemic, and they were already on a really bad trajectory before that. And we need to find a way to start reining this in. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a pressing issue for sure. Um, what about pharmacare? I know that was talked about a lot when this agreement was announced. It was one of the headline issues, uh, according to Drug Meet Singh. What are you, are you expecting anything on that tomorrow? Well, what we've lined out in the agreement for 2022 is beginning to get the legislative framework in uh, place. Okay, so no spending 
Not necessarily. I think you know there may be some there may be some money in terms of resourcing some of those initial conversations. But the first piece that was really the, the highlight of the agreement was was a legislative piece. Uh, Pharmacare is one because there are already different kinds of of plans across the country at the provincial level that don't that don't cover everybody. Uh, and there's different terms and conditions. Some have copays, some have premiums, some have deductibles, some have mixes of all those things. There's obviously going to be uh, you know, a lot of important conversation that has to happen with the uh, provinces. So there's some, there's some work to do there. And the idea of getting a legislative framework in place is to start that work. And then the other items on, on Pharmacare for the life of this agreement is to start getting uh, work done on a common formulary and to begin uh, some of the bulk purchasing work, which is some of the most important work because it's where there's the opportunity to save money. And I think that's something that is important for people to understand about a national pharmacare program. Yes, it's absolutely about expanding service, making sure everyone in Canada has access to prescription drugs. But if it's done properly, what it means is that Canadians can spend up to $4 billion a year, less than what we're already spending on prescription drugs while expanding coverage. And I think that's one of the great virtues of doing pharmacare together as a country than separately uh, as provinces and territories. Um, Daniel, lots of talk about new spending initiatives, you know, with dental care and housing initiatives and pharmacare. And, you know, a lot of people get upset and worried about that. What about the revenue side? Was there any agreement, was there any arrangements to increase revenue um, based on things that NDP have talked about around taxation or anything like that? Um, Where does that fit into this agreement? There was an agreement around revenue, and if you look at the agreement, what you'll find is that uh, you know where where the big push in the agreement is is on a platform commitment of the Liberals around uh, adding uh, an additional tax to the to the bank and insurance industry that have seen incredible uh, profits during the uh, pandemic, and of course some of those profits are connected to some of the support that there was for that industry during the pandemic. We've been very clear, we think, that industries that, uh, that, that did phenomenally well during the pandemic, as some have, need to be paying their fair share. There are many other revenue ideas, and I think this continues to be an important difference between Liberals and, and, and New Democrats that we think there are other things that government could be doing in order to pursue more revenue. We think that's an important part of bringing balance to the federal books, particularly when you keep in mind the Parliamentary Budget Officer issued a report at the end of last year that says now 1% of of Canada's population owns or controls about 25% of all the wealth that's generated in the country, and their effective tax rate tends to be lower than middle 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 class Canadians who are who are going to work every day and paying their taxes. Something has to be done about that, especially when you consider that the same report says just one percent of the Canadian population is sharing forty percent of the wealth that's that's generated by the country. So you think about or forty percent uh pardon me of the population is sharing one percent of the wealth that's generated. So there's a real inequality and in how the wealth that we produce as a country is is being shared and people at the top are paying far less of the tax bill share than they did 30 or 40 years ago. So something has to be done about that. We are pushing for a lot of those measures. What's in the agreement is only what we could get agreement uh, on between us 
and, and the Liberals. And one of the important uh, things to know is that because it's a confidence and supply agreement, it's not a coalition government, uh, that's because we wanted to reserve the right to continue to push on these things um, because we think that's really important. And there are important differences that remain between Liberals and uh, New Democrats, even though we've found some things that we can work on in this parliament so as not to jump right back into another election. We just had an election six months ago, and you know, we respect the results of the election, even though we would have liked to have seen an NDP government. We know that we have to play the hand the Canadians deal at election time. And I, I don't think most Canadians wanted the last election we had. I don't think anyone will be excited about an election right now. And so it's important to make progress where we can. And the agreement is a roadmap for some of the things that we can find agreement on. We reserve the right to criticize the government and push them on all the things that we that we continue not to agree on. Criticize. And, uh, you know, uh, Jagmeet Singh has said it's not a blank check, but you will support this budget in the House when it comes to a vote. The NDP will support this. I understand you haven't seen the budget yet, but you are going to vote in favor of it regardless, correct? Or is there a line that could be crossed? Well, I mean, if you, if you look at the agreement, one of the things that's up near the front is a no surprises policy. And I think that's important for political stability because there is the possibility that the government in pursuing its own priorities, ones that we don't share, uh, could present something that we don't find acceptable. So the idea is that if that were coming, that we would get a heads up. I'm not aware that we've been given any uh, thing, uh, any heads up on something that, that, that would be a red line for us. And so I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm confident that we're going to have a budget that we can. Hello, Daniel. Hmm. Had Daniel? No, we don't. Not sure what happened there, but uh, completely lost the call. Appreciate him joining us, though, for as long as he could. Uh, Daniel Blakey, the NDP finance critic from Manitoba, was good enough to call us back. Uh, Daniel, I appreciate you getting back in touch with us. I don't know what happened, but we ju- you just drop well, right out there. That's no worries. I don't know what happened either, but uh, but happy to be back. Yeah, I, I just had one or two more questions, and, and I guess one of them is, and you say you, know, you you keep referring to the agreement, which you write is public and we can all access it, um, and that's what you seem to be basing your expectations for tomorrow on. So am I to take it then there's there's no consultation, right? It's not like the NDP are involved in the budget formulation process. You don't have a seat at the table here? That's right. I mean, you know, Jigmeet wasn't sworn into the Privy Council. We're not, we're not part of the government. So there's certainly been some conversations about our expectations, and some of those conversations were part of coming to that agreement. Um, so it's not like there's no talk at all. But, uh, but, you know, we're not inside government. That's where the information about the budget uh, belongs, and that's where it stays. So uh, we are looking forward to, to seeing the budget tomorrow, and uh, and... And, you know, we we will see what happens. But I think we are quite confident that, you know, there's been good communication around our expectations. I think the agreement is is quite clear in terms of what we're expecting to see. So I'm confident that things are going to go well tomorrow. But, of course, uh, as so many things in uh, politics... Uh, you never know until until you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, and we're all waiting to see what happens tomorrow afternoon. Um, in the next half hour, we're going to be speaking with an economist. And I've just, I, I can't tell you how many texts I got, Daniel, from people saying, what about the cost of this? What about the debt? Inflation is through the roof. Interest rates are going to go up. Debt is going to get more expensive. Is there any consideration inside that room among the NDP or the Liberal or in your own caucus about we need to try and control our spending here. Things are getting so expensive, and it's only going to get worse as we go down the road here. 
Well, sure. And I mean, that's where you know, we were talking earlier about some, some of the revenue proposals that, that the NDP has. So we continue to, to raise those. I think that's an important part of the equation. And we're trying to impress that upon the uh, Liberal government. But I would say this too, which is that, you know, you can clear a deficit from, from the public books if that's by not helping people access dental care, if that's by not investing in housing, if it's by not investing in many of the things that we need to, you're really just pushing that deficit off the public ledger and onto the household budgets of individual Canadians that are already strapped. So, you know, dental care is about making sure that people have access to something that they really need, but it's also about making room in their household budget because otherwise that's something that they either have to pay for or do without. And we know that there are long-term costs to not having proper preventative oral health care. We know that in some cases bad teeth is a barrier for people to getting employment. Whether or not it should be is a separate question, mm-hmm. but the fact that it is, is, is well established. So these are things that we have to find a way to pay for. We can either do that individually or we can do it together. And I think we're better off working together. I'd say that's a fundamental kind of philosophical premise of the NDP. And uh, so that's very much a part of that conversation. But I would note, you know, I mean, people who often raise concerns about spending and where's the money going to come from in the House are are our Conservative colleagues. Yesterday, they had a a motion that said Canada should be increasing its military spending to 2% of GDP. That's an additional almost $30 billion overnight on what we spend uh, right now. That's less than a national pharmacare and a national dental care plan combined. So, you know, I do think what we're having is actually a question about priorities. When conservatives want to spend money on things that are their top priority, they're not they're actually not asking that question. They're suddenly coming up with numbers comparable to our own. And so it's about where you spend that money and 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 what people are getting for that money. And for me, that's always the the most important question is is not just how much are we spending, but what are we getting? for what we are spending. And, and that's where I've often been critical of the Liberals. They like to announce big numbers, but the question is, what are you actually getting for that money? Because just spending the money doesn't necessarily solve a problem. You have to have good, good public policy and good follow-through to make sure that you're getting value for money. Fair point. You're absolutely right. We can always find ways to do things better. But, but I think the fundamental thing that, I, you know, especially I'm hearing from my audience, and, and I agree with them, is you can talk about spending the money and, you know, should the government spend this money or, you know, or should we put it on the back of the tax? There is only one tax. It's, our, it's the taxpayer's money, Daniel. Bottom line, no matter what money you're spending, ultimately it's the taxpayer who is footing that bill. So you are literally deciding what you will spend the taxpayer's money on and removing it from their um, purview. It's, it's no longer up to them. You're, you're taking money from the taxpayer because this is where you want it spent. And I think that's some of the criticism that's coming in is there's only one taxpayer. It doesn't matter who's paying for it. Well, and, you know, I hear that argument. I, for me, that's one of the excellent arguments for a national pharmacare program. Right now, when you add up what we pay in various provincial and territorial pharmacare programs, and then the cost that Canadians are paying in individual premiums for, for group health plans and a bunch of other stuff, Canadians spend $24 billion every year on prescription drugs. The cost of a national pharmacare program is $20 billion. So even though that's adding to the federal ledger, you're quite right. There's only one taxpayer, yeah. and there's only one consumer at the end of the day. By doing it collectively through the federal government, we could be spending $4 billion less per year. So it's exactly because there is one taxpayer that I think a national pharmacare program makes a lot of sense, because that's $4 billion that can be assigned to other priorities. Daniel, I appreciate you calling back, and I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. 
Yeah, you bet. Thank you very much for having me. Have a great day. You too. That is Daniel Blakey, an NDP MP and the finance critic for the NDP party uh, in Manitoba. We're going to talk about a couple of new polls in this segment. We're going to start with... um, a really, really interesting poll, and I think it says a lot about where Canadians are in terms of our federal political landscape right now. Um, it's a poll done by Ipsos uh, on how you feel as a voter about the Liberal NDP agreement. And it's fascinating because the majority of Canadians support it. Say they're, well, at least they're okay with it, but um, half of Canadians <laughs> say, it's a betrayal of voters. So you got two things going on, and I guess two things can be true at the same time. We're going to chat now with Daryl Bricker. Uh, Daryl is the CEO of Ipsos Polling. Daryl, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me on, Shay. Yeah, those headlines kind of jumped out at me. Okay, so 60%, at least somewhat, support this deal. But at the same time, half of voters say, yeah, but it's a betrayal of what we wanted to see from the parties that we voted for. I, I mean, the two don't really seem to, to go hand in hand, do they? Uh, well, you know, there's a logic to it, um, and uh, Canadians are pretty wise. <laughs> so what they're telling us, I think, in the poll, this is my interpretation anyway, is that it's the right deed for the wrong reason. Yeah. Um, so basically what they're saying is the idea that we're going to have political stability over the space of the next three and a half years is something that I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to support. But when you ask me um, what I think about how this reflects uh, on the government's behavior and the two parties that are involved here, uh, the NDP and the Liberal Party, with their motivations, I'm really concerned that what they've done is done something contrary to what the people who voted for them wanted them to do. So they have a problem with the parties and the leaders and their motivations, but the outcome of it is okay. Yeah, so the numbers are 60% saying, yeah, the outcome is okay, I can live with it. But like you say, 51% say the Liberals and the NDP actually betrayed the people who voted for them. And that breaks down very evenly among their supporters, right? Yeah, it does. So people who voted for uh, for both the NDP and the Liberals are um, divided on the question of whether or not this is the right thing to do. Uh, what about what they think about, okay, the stability, I think we can all agree with that in some ways. We've mm-hmm. had, you know, I don't know if anybody's really... Uh, anxious to get back into another election cycle in this country, but do they think it's going to work? Will it be effective? Will it benefit us, or or is stability all they're looking for? Uh, Based on what they told us about whether or not it would lead to any better policy outcomes, again, Canadians very divided, almost 50-50 on this question. So it looks to me like it's really more about stability as opposed to what policies could come out of this process. But I think on the policy front, people are in the the wait-and-see mode. If we ask them, uh, you know, a year from now uh, how they felt, and there's a whole bunch of things that have been accomplished that people think are really positive, then I expect that you would see those numbers look a a lot more positive. But right now, it's wait-and-see. The best part of the whole thing is that it's given us some stability. Uh, I was really interested in how um, NDP voters took a look at what their party was doing. And I think they're right. You know, six in 10 Canadians say that this looks like the NDP has abandoned any hopes of actually forming majority government on their own. So they're going to make the best of the situation they're in. But that's not a good look for the NDP. Did that surprise you? No, it really didn't. I mean, the... uh 
Jagmeet Singh, since he's become the leader of the NDP, has basically abandoned the strategy of Jack Layton and uh, and uh, Thomas, even Thomas Mulcair, uh, who were both in it to win it. Basically, yeah. they thought that they were in a position where they could potentially you know, be, become prime minister and, and form a government and become the progressive champion in the country. Uh, what Jagmeet Singh has done is he's taken the NDP back to what it was under Ed Broadbent uh, previously and you know, David Lewis before that, in which they were perfectly happy to be the conscience of parliament and uh, particularly uh, have some uh, influence in minority government situations, especially with the Liberal Party, which uh, is a very different agenda than uh, than Jack Layton put forward and, and certainly different from what Tom Mulcair was trying to do as well. When you um, say that 60% of Canadians uh, support it, you know, maybe somewhat reluctantly, but overall support it. How does that break down along party lines? I would imagine the, the greatest support would, of course, come from the Liberals and the NDP, correct? It does, and the Conservatives are obviously on the other side of this. But even Conservatives, I haven't got it right in front of me, but there was, you know, a 20% or whatever that, that said that uh, that this would uh, this would be okay. And, and that's how you can see it as being really more about, uh, you know, three elections since 2015, that's enough for me. So let's somebody you know govern this place for a while and then we'll we'll judge it in a few years but uh, not anxious to go back into an election campaign and particularly given the last election campaign in which the the single issue that defined the campaign was whether or not the liberals were right to call it in the first place yeah that had a huge influence on how people felt about the motivations of the government. Right from the very first day, the public was basically saying, in the midst of a pandemic, we should not be doing this. So we're still in a pandemic, although we're slowly coming out of it. People are not anxious to put themselves back into a situation uh, where they're uh, um, considering uh, what the government is going to be going forward. The Liberals have had three chances. They've won three times. It's it's pretty clearly a, a situation in which Canadians aren't prepared to really uh, contemplate a, a different government at the moment, so they might as well dig in and start to govern. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think just, just having some stability and not being uh, into an, another election campaign is something that I think most Canadians are willing to uh, say is probably for the benefit of all of us. Um, Daryl, always interesting. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Shay. You bet. That's Daryl Bricker, who is the CEO of Ipsos polling, breaking down the numbers, and uh, I I just pulled up the the uh, actual poll results here in terms of how it breaks down along party lines, who supports it and who doesn't. The deal, as we said, has the strongest support among liberal and NDP supporters, about 90% support in those camps. Green, 75% of green voters say they support this move, drops to 46% when you talk to um, supporters of the bloc. And when you get to conservatives in Canada, it drops down to about 25%. So that's kind of interesting in a way that 25% of conservatives in Canada um, say they're okay with this deal. I wonder what that's about. I mean, is, is it a recognition of that's how parliamentary democracy works sometimes? I mean, you know, that's that's something that, you know, conservatives, a lever they could pull if, if they were in a position to do so. I mean, it, it's sort of something that's seen in other places quite often, or is it just... We need this stability right now. And if you're a conservative, part of the thinking is we don't have a leader, right? Um, So the more time we can have before the next election might actually benefit us. And if this provides a little stability, we're willing to hold our nose and reluctantly support it for that reason alone.
U.S. President Joe Biden saying today, I made clear Russia would pay a severe and immediate price for its atrocities in Bucha. Today, along with our allies and partners, we're announcing a new round of devastating sanctions. Those sanctions target Russian President Vladimir Putin's adult daughters, uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's wife and daughter, members of Russia's Security Council, and Americans are now banned from investing in Russia. So that's the latest round of sanctions. Of course, you're probably aware of the situation in Bucha at this point. The pictures of the misery that was visited upon the people of Bucha, Ukraine, over the weekend, and other areas around the capital, not just there, uh, have horrified the world. Um, Russian troops left, Ukrainian troops moved into the area, and we saw evidence of, as U.S. President Joe Biden said, atrocities and war crimes. Um, Citizens, men, women, children killed, some with their hands tied behind their backs, mass graves. Once again, it reopened the debate about what NATO and indeed what Canada should be doing to try and help defend Ukraine in all of this. We're going to chat now with Christian Luprecht, who is a national security expert, class of 1965 professor at the Royal Military College and a professor in the Department of Political Science and Economics at Queen's University. Christian, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate your time as always. Good morning. My pleasure. So let's just take a look at this. You know, it's been clear from right at the start that, you know, NATO wasn't going to do anything that might trigger World War III, as they put it. Nothing has changed on that front as a result of what we saw this weekend, right? The no-fly zone is not back up for discussion or or any other use of troops, essentially. That's still off the table, right? Uh, Yes, so any full use of troops, but of course there has been significant logistical support, there has been support for uh, some of the individuals who've been injured, um, and it appears there's also significant intelligence support. So uh, what's not happening is is kinetic uh, uh, support on the ground for Ukrainian troops per se, um, with actual members in Ukrainian land, uh, air, or maritime domain territory. Um, but NATO has provided and is providing considerable support uh, to the Ukrainian uh, effort, uh, without which likely the Ukrainians would have not been able to uh, resist as valiantly as they have. Okay, so we'll get into what's going on and what assistance is being offered in a second. I want to go back to before the actual invasion. Was NATO, was Canada and NATO doing enough um, in advance? Did they bolster Ukrainian defenses as much as they could have prior to the invasion? I mean, this it, I don't think it was, you know, news. I mean, we know what happened in 2014. Could we have done more prior to, you know, late February than we did? Well, we should have probably done a lot more um, about 15 years earlier. Uh, once uh, Vladimir Putin took his authoritarian turn, especially his infamous speech at the 2007 Munich Security Conference, where it should have been clear to the West uh, that uh, serious deterrence was required. And what Putin got for 15 years was slaps on the wrist about don't do this again or don't do that again. Um, whether that's his actions in Georgia, it's his actions in Syria, it's the actions by the Wagner Group around the world, uh, it's his efforts to interfere in various democratic processes and in the political and economic processes of a, of a host of countries around the world. And every time Putin got off with um, sort of minimal penalties, so there was no reason to, for him to think that he was, uh, there was going to be anything more severe happening uh, this time. And I think the, the, the relatively mild repercussions under the Obama administration 
administration for Putin really emboldened him. So it was very important. I think this is something that the Obama administration understood. Obama being a good uh, Cold Warrior and having spent 20 years uh, in U.S. politics during the Cold War, uh, he understood that uh, the alliance and the United States as the undisputed leader of the alliance would have to make good uh, on their threats and on serious threats. The challenge that the alliance has now is Putin in many ways still controls the escalation ladder. He decides what weapons to use. He decides where to attack, how to attack, how much human suffering to impose. And so NATO and the United States needs to be able to continue to be able to ratchet up the, the ability of those sanctions and to continue to inflict uh, ever greater degrees of pain on Russia because if Putin continues to escalate, but we don't then retaliate uh, in the political or economic uh, domain, then that will embolden him further. Do you think Seriously, Christian, that the economic pain that we're trying to inflict upon Russia and Putin himself, you know, targeting his adult daughters today, will that be enough? I mean, it doesn't seem like he's really too concerned at all about economic sanctions. I mean, they were threatened long before this began and didn't seem to have any effect. Yeah, some of this is symbolic, but symbolism here matters as well in the sense that, of course, these are all folks that have stolen billions of rubles uh, from the Russian state. In fact, the whole reason they continue to run the Russian state and have taken sort of control of it uh, is precisely because they see it as an extraction mechanism to enrich themselves. Uh, 145, the 145 wealthiest Russians own uh, as much as the other 145 million Russians put together. So you can see the enormous uh, kleptocracy uh, that is at play here. And what this ensures, what these sanctions ensure, it's a signal that um, all these folks, like they like their luxuries. They like their yachts. They like traveling to New York and to London to go shopping, uh, to order sort of these, the, the, these, uh, the, the ostentatious wealth in terms of cars and so forth. And that's what it cuts them off from. It, sort of, it, it means that they can no longer live sort of their ostentatious life lifestyle with impunity, um, buying apartments in Paris and so forth. And so I think it sort of sends a signal that for the rest of your life, you may not want to plan on leaving Russia because chances are um, you'll either find yourself arrested or all the stuff that you already own in the West is now effectively going to be repossessed. Let's talk about what Canada's doing or what Canada could do. Uh, what kind of assistance are we providing militarily? What kind of support are we offering to Ukraine as this all unfolds? Well, I mean, that depends entirely, you know, we, uh, what, what perspective you have on this. If you listen to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, the Prime Minister and the Minister of National Defense, uh, we're doing everything we can. I think those are the words that the government likes to keep on using. If you listen to the Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, and you listen to the Obama administration and, uh, uh, sorry, the Biden administration and President Biden, uh, there are serious admonishments for Canada not doing anywhere near enough. And the reason we're not doing enough is, on the defense side, uh, we had 20 years of privilege where we could basically have considerable discretion as to uh, how we assisted other countries with the force packages that sort of we could tailor to our capabilities. Well, that's no longer the case. The cupboard is bare, and the capabilities that are now required, we either don't have or we've already deployed everything we have. Uh, Canada has not met requests from both the Biden administration and from European 
allies uh, to shore up energy security, where the, um, we have considerable natural gas, but we are either unwilling or unable to export that liquefied natural gas uh, to Europe, and that's fundamentally a political decision. Um, and uh, we've made lots of sanctions announcements, but uh, to the best of my knowledge, there are no assets by Russian kleptocrats uh, that have been frozen, even though we know, for instance, that there's lots of dirty Russian money uh, in the real estate market in Canada, in particular in, in, uh, in Toronto. So, you know, I think the Allies are looking at this and going, you know, Canada is an unreliable ally, as I've written recently in the Globe and Mail in, uh, um, in an op-ed. And so it'll be very interesting to watch tomorrow whether the government and the federal budget will take the opportunity to make uh, not just grandiose announcements about money that in the end, with the convoluted procurement and hiring processes we have, we can't make good on, or whether we're actually going to make some procedural and legislative changes to be able to follow through on the grand announcements uh, that the federal government likes to make. And I should say that, you know, these are not just faults of the current government. We've had uh, 20 years of governments that have really ignored our capacity to be a good, reliable ally when it comes to Canadian international policy. So is there anything we can do or, or like you say, I mean, through negligence or whatever the case may be over the past many, many years, are we just in a position where we don't have anything to offer? I mean, is there anything we can do? Well, we can certainly commit to a significant rebuild of the Canadian Armed Forces over the next 15 years, uh, the way Germany has. And uh, money is only part of the problem here, um, because we've worn down the organization so significantly. The government could make a commitment to ensuring that uh, we actually um, enable the pipeline capacity that would be necessary uh, to get natural gas to the East Coast and to build a liquefied natural gas terminal. Uh, on the East Coast, and I think this would generate significant revenue for Canada that in a grand bargain, the government could then say is going to be reinvested in decarbonization and the energy transition. So I do think that this is what could politically be squared. Uh, and the government could actually take uh, some of the uh, findings that are coming out of the Cullen Commission on Money Laundering in British Columbia and translate these into effective legislative changes. Um, the government keeps on saying, for instance, it's going to make changes with regards to beneficial ownership rules and so forth that would have a significant impact. The government announced a Canada Financial Crimes Agency uh, to great fanfare to, uh, uh, as of present, nothing really has happened other than, uh, than a grandiose uh, announcement. The government in 2019 was going to restructure our uh, very um, uh, convoluted procurement, defense procurement structure. We're the only ally that has two defense procurement bureaucracies in the federal government and two ministers responsible. Uh, and, uh, and in 2021, that entirely disappeared from the platform. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of things that Canada could be doing and could be announcing in tomorrow's federal budget. So I, for one, will be looking very closely as to whether this is just going to be fog and mirrors, mm-hmm. what we're going to see tomorrow. Um, and I think the people who will be watching the closest is the Biden administration, our European allies, as to whether we can still be taken seriously as a reliable ally. Hey, Christian, do you have a minute to hang on and then we can ask about what NATO could do? Sure. Okay, I'll, I'll put you on hold. We'll take a quick break, and then, you know, we've talked about what Canada can or can't do, but what about our allies? What about NATO? Is there more we can be doing to help defend Ukraine? We'll talk about that right after this. Just seeing that um, the United States announcing they're going to send another $100 million in Javelin missiles to Ukraine, so uh, the steady supply of weaponry continues, although there's constantly a call for more. We're chatting with Christian Luprecht now, who is a national security expert and a professor at the Royal Military College and at Queen's University. Um, Christian, we talked about 
Canada and uh, their involvement. What about NATO? I mean, we know that there is that red line of not getting, quote-unquote, boots on the ground in Ukraine. Is there more they can do, or is it just the supplying of the weaponry, or are there other things that could be done that may not trigger an escalation that we haven't tried yet? Yeah, I mean, there's a host of options, and I think you'll see at the uh, early June NATO meeting a number of those options. I think Elena is going to lay out its plan, um, both for the publics that will need to support it, as well as, of course, for the Putin regime. Um, NATO will need to continue to show political um, uh, resilience. Uh, and deterrence by standing united. Uh, there'll be continued pressure to ensure you contain Russia politically, economically, militarily. And I think, as Biden pointed out in his remarks in Poland, uh, that this might be a challenge for many years to come, certainly as long as Putin and uh, his coterie remain in power. Uh, the, I think, greatest challenge will be making sure you keep publics on side in reinvesting uh, in defense capacity, because as the Americans will keep on insisting, of course, Russia is not the only problem that we have in the world. We have um, a major country in Asia-Pacific, that is to say China, that has uh, articulated similar intentions to redraw uh, the map in its own region. And so all the soldiers and attention that the U.S. diverts to Europe means those are resources that are not available in the Asia-Pacific. So they'll be considerable pressure on European allies and on countries such as Canada to do more in the European theater so that the Americans can focus on challenges elsewhere in the world, because, of course, authoritarianism um, is, uh, is, is showing its ambitions um, uh, across the globe. And so considerable challenges here for NATO, not just immediately on the Russian periphery, but, uh, um, but further afield. And so I think what we'll see here is, or what we'll hopefully see, uh, is more more members, including Canada, understanding uh, that they have a key role to play and that uh, NATO, especially for Canada, is arguably our most important multilateral international policy force multiplier as an institution um, and uh, that uh, it is time for us to step up and to play that role because we all have the memory from the first half of the 20th century of the blood and treasure that it costs if we actually get into a hot kinetic war. And so investing a little bit to increase the insurance premium that we pay and that NATO member countries and allied countries are paying uh, to try to keep the peace uh, is a much better investment than getting ourselves dragged into uh, an actual kinetic quagmire. And I think that's the message that NATO is sending to Putin and it's sending to uh, its uh, um, its members, but um, yeah, it shows that the United States is out front. Yep. Everybody's and everybody's trying to follow, um, and uh, we need to, I think, be better prepared to be able to make contributions that end up mirroring uh, in spirit uh, and in action that what the United States is putting forward. And it would also show Christian, and I think this would be important. Correct me if I'm wrong. That. Uh, we're committed to this as long as it may take, right? We're going to make these investments and we're going to take this stance and we're going to do these things and we'll continue to do them, right? I mean, you need to to get it out there and make it clear that this isn't something that we're going to forget about. We're going to be here to make sure we see this through. Um, that was the message from the Biden administration. We might be here not just for months, but likely for years. And I mean, from a broader, from the uh, Russian periphery perspective, I mean, Russia has been coercing its periphery uh, by force for 600 years, since the 15th century. Um, and uh, I think we, we had some amnesia when we thought that uh, we could trust uh, the Russian regime and when we had regime change in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I think the message here for NATO and NATO member countries is that 
um, regardless of what transpires in Russia, you ultimately can't trust Russian intentions and ambitions and that this crumbling empire uh, will continue to try to rear its head and try to assert itself and that the greatest threat that it has uh, is ultimately democratization. And, and that's what Ukraine is about. It's not about NATO membership or Russian security. Uh, it's about this democratic experiment uh, on the Russian periphery um, that poses an existential threat to the Putin regime. Um, so what do you expect to see next from NATO? Is it, I mean, is there anything else that can be done in terms of, and you know, we've talked a lot about long-term and reinvestment and building up defense forces in Canada and other NATO locations, but in terms of what's happening right now today in, into this weekend, do you expect to see any change in position from NATO or is it just going to be continued to supply weaponry? Will there be more, I don't know, exercises like you say or something? Will there be some more show of force or in any way? Well, I think certainly if Putin continues to escalate, if he uses non-conventional weapons, whether that's chemical weapons, uh, as he did in Syria, where they were deployed in a heinous way to force people out of bunkers because chemical weapons drop to uh, drop to the ground and into bunkers, forcing uh, local populations then out, and then you call in the airstrikes and you hit those local populations. If we start to see that sort of pattern, I think, um, or if we start to see the use of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine, I think that might very much change the NATO posture, uh, also about possible involvement, uh, certainly with regards to a no-fly zone or trying to take out uh, take out Russian assets. Um, so I think um, there is a real sense here over that regard over the last two days that with these atrocities, uh, that NATO is prepared to continue to escalate and to step up um, uh, relative to uh, Russian actions, and that's going to be an important component in terms of deterrence. So I would say that. Uh, yeah, we'll continue on the logistics front. We'll continue to provide so-called defensive weapons, even though I'm not sure there is such a thing as a defensive weapon per se. Um, uh, so I think that's a that's a political ruse that politicians are trying to sell our populations. We actually need to make sure that the Ukrainians continue to have ammunition. They're running short on ammunition. Much of this gear we don't actually manufacture, so it means that we're either going to need to train them on our own gear and give them our own gear, um, or we're going to need to find other ways to support them. But there's going to be a significant uh, need and demand, not just to sustain, as you point out, what we're currently doing, uh, but to have the potential to escalate yeah. uh, relative to Putin's actions. Yeah, to ramp it up. Uh, Christian, great uh, insight. Thanks so much for joining us, as always. Appreciate your time. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. Have you a bet. good morning. You too. That is Christian Luprecht, who is a national security expert, class of 65 professor at Royal Military College. He's a professor, professor in the Department of Political Science and economics at Queen's University. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.